All right, so Second Peter chapter three, finishing up our study through the books of First and Second Peter, and one of the things uh, before we get into chapter three, just kind of a little review. Chapter one and two is basically him just exhorting the church to live godly, live righteously, follow the word of God, do all these things you're supposed to do. And it's kind of the same thing that he told them in First Peter, a lot of the same things. And so when we get to chapter three, uh, he s- starts out by saying the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So this epistle is written to the same people he wrote first Peter to, and he writes it for the same reason he wrote the first epistle. It's a reminder. Now, I don't know how much time went between these two epistles, but again, I've been talking a lot about this. We need reminders to live right. We need constant exhortation. That's why we need church. And, you know, and not only do we need regular church, I mean, not only do we need to have church weekly like we do, but, you know, we also need things too that are kind of out of the ordinary, you know, because you can get into a rut. You can get into a rut so much that things almost don't have an impact anymore. Have you ever just felt like that? Like with, with your kids too, you spank them so much, it's like it doesn't do anything anymore. You know, so sometimes you have to figure out like, you know, creative ways to get their attention. And that could even happen in church. You can just become so used to getting preached to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that it starts to not even have a whole lot of impact anymore. So that's why, you know, sometimes churches, they have conferences, revivals, and all these things just to shake you up a little bit and, you know, get you out of your routine hoping that something nails you, you know, something will get your attention. And we, we all need these things. And how that's done, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. But I, I would encourage everyone to, you know, take the time uh, every year to, you know, go to a conference or something like that. You know, do those things, those spiritual retreats, you know, whether it be uh, some of the camps and things we're planning on going to. These are things that will just kind of get you out of your comfort zone and just kind of, give you an extra reminder, an extra kick in the pants. And we, we all need that kind of thing. It's very important. And so that's why I wrote it in First Peter 5, verse 12. He said, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying, uh, that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. And so he mentioned before why he was writing. And in First uh, Peter 5, he explained why I'm writing. He's trying to exhort them, trying to encourage them. So in verse 2, of Second Peter 3, he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Now, this is, this is very important because one of the things I talked about one of the weeks, I forgot which one it was, but I've been saying that we're, you know, we're, we're preaching or the way I interpret, I forgot what chapter it was in, in I think it was First Peter, it might have been Second Peter. They're all running together. So we interpret it the same way he did in that day. Why? Because we are still in the last days. Nothing has changed. So the instruction that he has given, it definitely applies to us today because we are still in the same time. Okay? We think we are in end, end times. You know, we think we're in special end times. And, and I know we feel like that all the time. But no, last days started back then. And so the instructions that he is giving that group in that time are our instructions. And so notice here in this verse how he mentions the things that he's reminding them of are the things that he taught them by the holy prophets. What's he talking about? The Old Testament. Did you know Peter in the New Testament dispensation preached from the Old Testament? Isn't that what we do today? We preach and we go back to the Old Testament for instruction, for doctrine, for reproof. All scripture is given by inspiration. When he was talking about that, he's talking about the Old Testament too. And obviously, you do have to rightly divide those things. We're not going to go to the Old Testament and read that and start sacrificing animals. But we are going to learn from those things. We're going to take principles from those, life application, uh, instruction, and we're going to use these things today. And he said, I'm reminding you of these things that the holy prophets wrote about, that Old Testament, but also what the apostles wrote about. And did you know our New Testament, what we have in the New Testament was a, a core, and you know, and I can't prove this from the Bible, okay? Because the Bible doesn't spell some of this stuff out. But according to history, that our canon of Scripture we have in the New Testament 
the books that they chose were all ones that were either written by apostles or under the uh, guidance of apostles. Because obviously, uh, books like Mark and Luke, uh, you know, those weren't written, they weren't apostles, but uh, you know, supposedly they were written under the instruction of apostles. And I forgot which one for each one. I have to go back and look at my notes on that. But I say all that to say that one of the things that we, I guess you could say we believe in here, all right? And I probably won't call it this. I'll probably be careful about how I say this because a lot of people would might take it the wrong way. But I do believe that a church should be under apostolic authority. Okay, now what does that mean? Do we have apostles today? Well, not apostles of Jesus Christ like the 12. Okay, but understand what it what is it that we claim is the authority of our church the bible and what is it that we preach from? We, we preach from the bible from the new testament and we get our instruction from that we use peter's writings as authority for what we teach for what we do so guess what peter's an authority in our church isn't he because we're following his writings the apostle paul is an authority in our church. What is it that we use to settle doctrine, to settle arguments, to set, settle things? We use the Apostle Paul. When we uh, partake in the Lord's Supper, what is our main scripture that we go to to you know, prove what we believe about it and, and try to practice how we do it? We go to Paul's writings in Corinthians. Why? Because these guys were apostles that were handpicked by Jesus Christ, that were sent out by Jesus Christ, that he... Uh, had write his word to pen these things down and as a church today we are following their writings so yes we are under apostolic authority i guess you could say it's just we call it the word of god but it was written by apostles and so understand before the scriptures were all written you know during this time not everybody had all the scriptures like we do today and you know what that you know what the authority of the church was during that time it was apostles and after the apostles died you know what? You know, you, you study the history on this. After the first, when it got into the second century, John, he was the last of the apostles to die. And after he died, it was only a matter of time and things already started kind of getting weird in the church. Stuff started happening. And they're like, you know, we've got to settle on doctrine. We've got to settle on authority. And that's when they ended up settling on what the scriptures were. And they were like, you know what? The apostles are the authority of the church. So since the apostles were all dead and weren't around anymore, you know what they did? They got their writings together and put together the New Testament. Why? Because they were supposed to continue being in authority. And so even though they're dead, we have the scriptures and we follow them today. These are the words of, you know, obviously it's the word of God. They wrote them under inspiration, but God used these apostles. So I guess you could say we believe in apostolic authority. Now watch out for the guy who comes along and says, you know, calls himself apostle, whatever. Okay. Now, apostle, I've talked about this before. It just means sent. Okay. So if we send somebody to start a church in Chicago, technically they're an apostle, aren't they? They got sent. Now, are they apostle of Jesus Christ or an apostle of Liberty Baptist Church? You know, if they're under, if they're under the authority of our church for a while, I guess you could say, it, but we're not going to call them that because it'll probably just confuse people. Uh, and then it might get lifted up with pride too. Like, you know, you know you're a pastor, I'm a apostle. You know, and, and I don't think, I don't think it would work out real good. But in, in most religions and people today that are calling themselves apostles are weirdos. And we really don't want to identify ourselves with those people. So, uh, so anyway, uh, verse three. So it says, knowing this first, and he says this after he talks about the things that they taught written by the holy prophets and by the apostles. He goes on to say, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. And this is why we have to stick to the Bible. This is why we've got to remember the words of the holy prophets and of the apostles because it was warned that during those last days, and we're in them, that there was going to be some scoffers that are going to come along, these people who are walking after their own lusts. In other words, and we talked about some of this last week in Second Peter 2, these false prophets, they do. They find a way to 
interpret the scriptures in a way that benefits them. And understand, and folks, you've got to learn how to do this. You know, guys that are studying to be pastors, I try to teach you this. But folks, I want all of you to know how to do this. Uh, I mean, I just watched a sermon today where it was so obvious that, and sometimes all preachers do this. Sometimes we want to preach on something. And so we go find some scripture to back up what we're thinking. And that goes along with what we want to say. Okay? I mean, you know, is, is that wrong? Well, I mean, as long as you preach the scriptures right, I guess it's okay. You know, but at the same time, a lot of times people, you can tell, they just want to preach something really bad. And what they do to the scriptures to try to, you know, make the Bible sound like it says the same thing as their opinion is horrible. You know what that's called? That's, I mean, they are basically trying to make the Bible fulfill their own lust. This is what I want to be able to say. This is how I feel about something. Let me see if I can find some phrases in the Bible that makes it look like God feels the same way I do. That is, this, that is exactly what this is talking about. Now, and a lot of people do it today. You know, we have the trendies that we like to talk about. That I mean, literally, the, the, how they call everything promoting holiness, legalism. And some of these people are pretty slick. I mean, good night. They make it sound like God's fine with everybody just going out and living in lasciviousness. And, but folks, that's just not the case. But these people, they'll stand there quoting scripture. They got a Bible in their hand. They'll talk about loving the Lord, but it's clear their doctrine is a mile off. It's like, why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because they're, they're just walking after their own lust. And we've got to learn to interpret the Bible as it's written, as it's supposed to be. And you've got to learn to spot that. And you need to know your Bible well enough to know when somebody's just taking a phrase and using it according to their will or if they are using it in context. It's very important. And unfortunately today, people are so biblically illiterate that preachers get away with it. And you've got to watch out for that stuff. It's, it's dangerous. They're walking after their own lusts. Verse 4 says, And saying, Where is the promise of His coming? So here... While there's all kinds of ways we can do this, make the Bible fit, you know, whatever our preconceived ideas are, whatever our flesh desires. In this particular case, what they were doing is these people are saying, where is the promise of his coming? And, and obviously, it's clear from the context here when they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know, we all ask ourselves that all the time. Like, why isn't Jesus back yet? And how many have ever asked that before? Okay, how many of you were asking that in 2020 when all everything was going down? It's like, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, pretty much every time I listen to Joe Biden give a speech, I'm like, where is the promise of his coming? It's like, you know, but but when I'm saying that, okay, I'm just saying that in the sense of, you know, where is he? The way they're saying it here, they're saying it like casting doubt on it. And not not only casting doubt on it, but what they were doing was making it act like his coming was something that wasn't. Something that had already happened. Because notice how it says, uh, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And we see that, in, like the Apostle Paul talked about those who said that the resurrection has passed and overthrow the faith of some. So the thing is, if the resurrection was passed, then technically God didn't break His promise, did He? Because he came, it just wasn't very cool. You know, it wasn't what we were expecting. But that was overthrowing the faith of some, and it was just false. And so when they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? It could have been a reference to the fact that they're saying, you know, where is it? It's something that already happened, like Hymenaeus and Philetus taught. Or it could have been just like, you know what, he's just not coming back for you. And, I, you know, because look how much time has passed. I don't know for sure what they were trying to do with that. But notice what it says in verse 5. It says, for this, they willingly are ignorant um, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was being overflowed with water perished. Okay? So notice the example that Peter uses uh, to illustrate the foolishness and the error of teaching that Jesus isn't really coming back to judge the world. 
He uses the flood. Peter, basically what he was doing right here, he's saying, you know what? It's foolish for you to think that Jesus isn't literally going to come back and judge this world because remember what he did with the flood? He used the flood as proof. Folks, the flood, one of the biggest reasons evolutionists, the scientists fight the flood is because it's proof that God means business when he talks about judgment. If God judged the world before, like he promised he would, he's probably going to do it again, like he promised he would. Did you know that one of the reasons we know we're going to rise again one of these days is because Jesus rose from the dead? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's the first fruits of the resurrection, is proof that we will rise from the dead one of these days. In fact, the Bible, te- Paul taught, it's a package deal. If we don't rise from the dead, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But no, we are going to rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. And you know proof that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he is going to destroy this world and judge the world by fire is the fact that he did it before with the flood. He kept that promise back then. He will keep this promise. Now, here's a big difference in these promises. When it came to the flood, he told them how long they had. He said 120 years. Now, with the destruction of the world by fire, he has not told us how long that's going to be. That's one difference. But he did say it's going to happen, and it's going to happen. And people, they are willingly ignorant that the flood happened. And folks, there is so much scientific evidence all over this planet that just screams global flood. It's all over the place. You know, when you're finding fossils on a mountain, you know what that screams? Global flood. You know, when you're seeing a tree, you know, that's gone through just multiple layers of dirt, you know what that says? Global flood. You know, when they're finding, like, you know, the underwater pyramid that they have out there. I don't know if you've seen some of the documentaries on that. How, how did they build that? Uh, they didn't build it underwater. Okay, I'm sorry, folks. Aquaman, that's fake. All right, that's not proven anything. Okay, no. The geography changed after the flood. There's so many things that scream flood, but yet they fight this thing. They fight it more than anything. Why? Because if we start talking about the flood, you know what we got to do? We got to talk about God. We've got to talk about his judgment. And then people are going to look at that and say, well, you know what? If God judged the world with water, like he said, and if God's that same God said, I'm going to judge the world by fire, he's probably going to do it. We probably should find out what God wants us to do. We should probably find out why God's going to judge us. Now we're going to have to start talking about sin. Nobody wants to do that. We're going to have to start talking about Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to do that, but that's what we're going to have to do. So people are willingly ignorant on this. And, you know, we like to talk about atheists and, you know, on April 1st, talk about it, National Atheist Day, because, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I personally don't believe most atheists are fools. I just think they're God haters. Because a fool, they actually believe what they're saying. Now, if these atheists actually believe what they're saying about evolution, then yes, they are a fool. But I think they just hate God, most of them. Why do, why do, because think about it, why do atheists spend so much time trying to debunk things about God and don't seem to care about Allah? You know, why aren't they trying to, you know, teach these Muslims Allah's fake? Why aren't they worried about Allah? Why aren't they worried about Buddha? Why is it always our God that they're worried about? I find that interesting. You know why? Because Allah never judged the world and Allah never will. But our God is going to judge the world. And so that's why they spend a lot of time talking about our God and why, why they hate us so much. And so it says, the, whereby the world is then being overflowed with water perish, but the heaven and, and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, let me ask you something. The Noah's flood, okay, and this is the easy answer. Is it literal or is it an allegory? Okay, okay, we believe literal, okay, and that, and just in case anyone's wondering, we now listen. There are religions out there that believe these are just kind of inspirational stories that are allegorical that don't take it literal. Okay, those people are heretics, and we could talk about that subject another day. But that you know, there was a time. 
Uh, you know, back when they, you know, originally came up with the fundamentals, one of the things that they came, as, uh, they talked about as a fundamental was about the miracles of Christ, that they were literal. Because a lot of so-called Christians were teaching those things weren't literal. And there are. There's people out there today uh, that act like these things aren't literal. I mean, even the Jews, they don't believe these things were literal stories that actually happened. Okay? In case anyone's wondering, we do. These are not inspirational stories. These are historical facts. And so, if we believe that the flood was literal, and we do, and by the same word, there's fire that's kept in store for judgment, do we believe that's figurative or literal? We believe that's literal. Okay, folks, I don't believe there's anything figurative about this baptism by fire that's coming for the world. I believe it is literal, and it should scare people. And if I may just speculate, okay, I, I, this, I'm, I'm just talking to you right now. I'm not preaching, okay? I'm speculating. But notice how it says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire. Okay? Now, how is that fire going to come? How is that fire going to start? Okay? And I personally believe that, you know, when the flood came on the world, that there was, you know, it was a scientific event that happened. Something changed globally that caused that canopy of water to come down on the earth. And you know what? I often wonder if there is something, you know, about this planet that is just naturally going to happen. And, you know, you wonder sometimes these scientists that are always worried about global warming and panicking about all these. I sometimes wonder if they are seeing something. I sometimes, you know, when I hear them talking about how it's only a matter of time and, you know, all these horrible things are going to happen, I sometimes wonder, I wonder if they are seeing something. You know, I'll bet if they had the tools and things back then, you know, somebody might have been able to predict that the flood was going to come if they had had the things that we do today. But, you know, here's the thing. They're willingly ignorant. You know what we don't see those people doing saying, you know what, I'm looking at what's going on in this planet and saying, I think what the Bible says is actually going to happen. But you know, you know what they do? Instead of giving glory to God, instead of repenting, you know what they do? They come preach to us about environmentalism. You know, instead of saying, you know what? God's judge going to judge this world because of sin. They try to act like our sin is using too much gas. You know, burning too many tires or whatever. So they can promote their big government. Isn't, isn't that interesting? So, you know what? I wouldn't totally write off everything they say about global warming. You know what? When I hear them talking about all these cataclysmic things that are coming for the planet, I tend to think they're probably seeing something because if we believe the Bible, you know, then... But, you know, it, it's just kind of our natural instinct to just deny everything that they're saying. But, no, their reasoning that these things are coming is wrong. But I do, I do believe these things are coming. I do believe in global warming that's coming. It's going to get really warm. It's going to get really warm here. And I'm glad I'm protected. And instead of, you know, going and uh, getting, you know, AOC to come preach to us, you know, we're going to preach the gospel to people so they can be spared that judgment. Because the judgment's coming, folks. Just like the flood came, but you know what? God... Built an, you know, had Noah build an ark that spared some people. You know what? We're going, we're going to tell people about Jesus Christ because that will spare us the judgment. Because the judgment's coming one way or another. Uh, nothing can stop that. So, verse 8 says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And folks, I don't believe it could be more clear why Peter said this. Because Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he knew a day was going to come where people were going to doubt the coming of Christ because it was possible that it would not happen for a very long time. And let me tell you, there, there's a few things that are very clear in the Bible, and that is that the apostles, they had no idea when Jesus was going to come back. And I'm getting tired of, of hearing some of these crazy numerology people trying to use Bible numerics, as they call it, to figure out when the rapture is coming. I am so tired of that. Folks, if Peter couldn't figure it out, if Jesus didn't know, you didn't figure it out through your numerology weirdness. Okay? It's not happening. Sluter 
and this other guy that's big in the numerology, they, they've called 2033. It's got to be by then. By 2033. Hey, you know what? That'd be great, but you know, I kind of hope past that just so they can eat their words. But you know what? Nobody ever eats their words. People, they say this stuff all the time and they get away with it. And it's absolutely ridiculous. But folks, we're not going to figure it out. Okay? Do, don't, nobody come to me, show me something you learned in the Bible that helped you figure out what year the rapture is going to come. All right? If I'm in a good mood, I'll be polite. And, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, that's how, that's how I would respond. If I was being nice, I would say, well, that'd be great. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that's code for, I think you're an idiot, but I'm too nice to say it. Okay? If I'm in a bad mood, I'm just going to leave me alone. All right? that, you, you, have, you have no idea. That's ridiculous. Okay, we don't know. But, folks, I think Peter understood it, it might not be for a really long time. And you know what? I, I have, I'm always watching for this. I still haven't found anything yet. But I, do, I ask that question all the time. Why is it taking so long? To me, it seems like he should have come a long time ago. But you know what? He hasn't, and I don't know why. I can't find anything in the Scriptures that indicates how long it was going to take. I can't figure that out. But you know what? I believe he's going to come back. Even if it goes past 2033. Even if everybody that was alive in 1948 when Israel became a nation, if that generation completely passes and the rapture still hasn't come, I'm still going to believe he's coming back. I'm never going to let go of that. I believe it. He has to. Okay? He did what he promised with the flood. He's going to do what he promised with his second coming. He came the first time like he said. He's going to come the second time like he said. I have no doubt about that. And even if I die before it happens, I'm still going to get to see it because he's going to call me out of that grave and I'm going to see it with these eyes. Just like Job talked about. So, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this concept is difficult for us to grasp because it's been confirmed in our minds for so long that judgment is coming. Okay, we all know that. Okay, we've all, you know, most of us in here, we were born uh, after the 70s. Or, and in the 70s, that's when the rapture stuff just really became big. And kind of got a, the way we all teach the tribulation, the way we all talk about it with all the planes crashing and cars going off the road and everything, it's cemented in our minds. We've accepted that it's going to happen. We have no doubt. Those of us that are you know, post-trib, we even believe we're going to be here and we're going to see a lot of the stuff that happens in the tribulation. We don't think we're going to see what happens after the rapture when all, every plane crashes and you know, all the cars go off the road. We don't, we don't believe we're going to see that. But we understand these things are going to happen. Nothing can change that. And so we do. We have an attitude of bring it on, don't we? You know, even so come. Right? That's what John said. You know, we're, we're almost anxious for it. But understand, the fact that Christ has not come back yet, the, Peter said it's because the Lord's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, which causes people to say, but you know, here's the thing, the longer it takes for Christ to come back, that's the more people that's going to go to hell too. You know, because we're not really gaining ground on this thing, are we? We're, we're not really gaining ground. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything about the judgment of God. Okay, I, I'm not going to pretend I understand the mind of God. I only trust that He's just and that He knows what He's doing. Okay, I don't like the concept of an eternal hell. I don't like it. But I believe it. Okay, And I trust that God knows what He's doing when it comes to that. And so I, I'm going to keep on preaching it. I'm going to keep on believing it. And it doesn't matter if I don't like it. It's, it's what God says. And so I accept it. And you know what it does? It does motivate me to want to tell people. And, and But... God is being merciful in waiting. And, and, and I want to kind of just ask you, I want, I want you to think for a minute, all right? You know, don't answer this out loud or anything, but just think about this in your mind because, you know, when we stop and think about it, the tribulation, the wrath of God, it's going to be a very devastating time. There's no doubt about it. Horrible, horrible things are going to happen to real, live, flesh and blood people. Good people are going to suffer. Bad people are going to suffer. You know, decent people that we like that are lost are going to suffer. And so, I want to ask you a question. Just 
This will never happen, but just, just to think, all right, for the sake of thought, all right? What if I had a button up here that if you pushed it, it would start the seven-year countdown for everything? I mean, if right now, I mean, we're anxious for Jesus to come back, right? But what if you could push the button and you had the power to decide when it started and then the clock starts ticking? I mean, now, we know we're going to have to go through some stuff. But we also know how it's going to end. So if I had that button up here, and I was like, all right, folks, we've been talking about this for a while. We can make it a reality. You just got to come push the button. Would you push the button? Think about it. What, you know, would you push a button? All right. When you're laying in bed tonight, think about that for a minute. All right. You know, you'll ponder on that sometime. You know, and, and, and here's why I say that, because another question I want to ask you, and this is one that we can't answer. Okay. You, you can't answer this question. But if you knew exactly how, what it was really going to be like for those seven years and even the period of time that we're here, would you still push the button? If you knew what was going to happen, if you knew the, the trials and the temptations and things you're going to face, you know what? Chances are we probably wouldn't. You know why? And here's why. And this is one of the reasons, too, I believe God is being long-suffering. Because life on this earth is precious and it is a gift. Okay? Even though there's stuff that goes on in this world that we don't like and there's a lot of wickedness and even though we've got great things coming for us in heaven and we're looking forward to that, we're looking for the millennial kingdom, all that stuff, you know what? This life, there's a lot of great things about it, isn't it? It's, it's great, you know, you know ha- having a wife and having children and watching them grow up, you know, just... You know, all the things we do, it's, you know, the, just the, the seasons, the, you know, the traveling and seeing the sights and enjoying the creation. These are all wonderful things. These are gifts of God. And you know what? If you kind of like living life right now and you don't want things to turn to mayhem, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, now obviously, I'm glad it's not my job and it's not my responsibility to decide when the button gets pushed. I'm glad I'm not the one breaking the seals. I'm not worthy, okay? But Jesus is. And Jesus is going to, you know, he is going to decide that. And, and whenever he decides it's ready, that's good enough for me. But, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd want to make that decision. Because, see, we need to understand that life on this earth is a wonderful gift, or it's, at least it's supposed to be a wonderful gift. And you know what? If it's not, okay, if you just hate this life so much, you're like, I'd push that button right now. I'm, I'm ready for everybody to get what's coming to them. You know, bring it on. You know, it's probably because you're living life wrong. Okay? Now, now, sometimes it's because we're suffering, you know, suffering persecution. I'm sure there's some parts of the world where the Christians are like, I'd push the button right now because they're suffering. But you know what? When it comes to life in a free world, it is a precious gift. It is a wonderful thing. And you know what? It's okay if you're enjoying it. Because you know God wants you to enjoy life. God wants, God wants people to live life, enjoy his creation, to get married, have kids, watch him grow. God wants us doing all those things. God wants you experiencing becoming a parent, becoming a grandparent. God wants all those things, and those things are gifts. And the fact that God is allowing life to go on and things to continue, it is a gift. Because there is a generation that's going to have that gift taken away and it's going to suffer greatly. And there, it is going to be a miserable time and the truth is, if you think I'd push the button right now, it's probably because you don't really know what it's going to be like. If you did know what it was going to be like for you, you'd probably be like, hey, Lord, you know, give me some more time. You know, we would say it this way, you know, give me more time to win some more souls. <laughs> That's what we would all say. It's like, you know, I, I'm ready for you to come. But I want to get a few more people saved. First, you know, that's that's kind of our, our go to for everything. I, I just want to win more souls. Right. You know, I, I'll I'll take the mark of the beast. As, you know, as, as I can go soul winning some more. Right. You know, people use that for everything. And, you know, and obviously that's ridiculous. But people don't go almost that far. You know, I'll do whatever compromise I have to as long as I can go soul winning more. Stop making soul winning look bad. I hate when people do that. But I, there will be some people. There will be someone that tries that when the mark of the beast gets rolled out. I don't believe in taking the mark of the beast, but you know what? How can I win souls if I'm dead? You know, so <laughs> I promise somebody will try that. Uh, I, I know I could, I, I could guess a few people probably do that. But verse 10, 
It says, but of the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And this passage often perplexes people because it seems to mess up everyone's timeline on their you know, charts that they have. But, you know, and everybody loves to get really dogmatic on their timeline, but I don't think this passage proves anyone's timeline right or wrong because this is my, you know, my opinion on how things are going to play out. I believe that the day of the Lord begins at the rapture and ends after the millennium. I think because, you know, just like, you know, we're in the last days now and you have different days and different ages. I think that millennial reign, you know, that's like God's day. You know, that's the that's the day of the Lord. I think you can call that whole time the day of the Lord, because I personally believe the baptism by fire is going to come after the millennium and right before the new heaven and the new earth. And so I don't believe that the day of the Lord is like a 24 hour period. I think it's a, a new day, a new age, you could say. And it all gets kicked off, you know, after he breaks those seals and uh, he, uh, sun's darkened and moon turned to blood and he yanks us out of here and he starts bringing his wrath down on this world. And so, uh, but either way you spin it, the day of the Lord begins with judgment, has judgment in the middle. And, you know, with, and it has with Jesus ruling the earth with a rod of iron. And you know what? It ends with judgment. The day of the Lord ultimately is about judgment. And it's because there's a lot of things that need to be set in order. Mankind has failed. You understand, and I don't, I don't want to go into a long thing on this, but really when you, when you look at the Bible, when you look at human history, here's what you have. God created man because God wanted to fellowship with man. But man sinned, and that fellowship was broken. Now, what we've been seeing throughout the Bible is a work of God to restore that fellowship with man. And so in order for fellowship to be restored with man, for God to be able to be on this earth and uh, to fellowship with us like we all want, some things have got to be taken care of on this earth. Some things need to be accomplished. And ultimately, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to do whatever needs to be done to prepare this world for God the Father. And once he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that's going to be destroyed is death, you know what he's going to do? He's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father. And we see in Revelation 21, God's going to come and he's going to dwell with us. And we will be his people and he's going to wipe away all tears. We're, we're looking forward to that. Now, I don't understand everything that Jesus has to do to prep this world to receive the Father. But I'm pretty confident He's going to get it done. I'm pretty confident He's going to take care of all those things during that thousand years and it's going to, uh, it's going to end really good for those of us who are saved. But those who aren't, it's going to be a, it's going to be a really bad time. So uh, that, that entire thousand years, it's all about judgment. Jesus is judging this world. He is ruling this world. And there's going to be things that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to accomplish. And I think there's more that we don't know about the millennium than what we do know about the millennium. And I'm content to wait and get my instructions from Jesus Christ himself. And I'll figure out what we're supposed to do then. So, you know, Pastor Tom, I think you need to do a series prepping us for, uh, you know, how we're going to do things in the millennium. I'm not ready to preach that yet. Okay. But uh, if I get a chance to preach some sermons after Jesus comes back, I'll probably be able to preach a good one on that. But right now, uh, I, I don't have a whole lot of information. So, uh, verse 11 says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? You know, it is, and it is foolish to live for the things of this world when they're all going to burn this is why we don't need to worry about laying up treasures on earth okay whatever you try to accomplish for yourself it's going to burn now there's nothing like i said there's nothing wrong with getting some possessions on this earth because you know these things are tools we need houses to live in you know we need transportation we need clothes we need we need all these things to live but you know what we should not live for those things you know, we should live 
for the things of God because those have eternal value and you pick your most prized possession, folks, the only thing that is going to survive that baptism of fire is our glorified bodies. Okay? Everything else, it's all going to burn up. And, and I personally think at that point, there's not even going to be anything recognizable left on this earth. Because you know what? Everything on this earth has just been tainted by sin. And I, I think it's all going to go. And it's going to be a brand new heaven, new earth, where all those things are gone that has no sin. Not, not tainted by sin in any way. And verse 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're living for. So our goals are all, our mindset is always on those things that are to come because this world is temporary. If you're lucky, you might get a hundred years, you know, in this flesh. And, but then even when it comes to the glorified flesh, you're only going to get a thousand years in this earth or even in the, in the millennial kingdom. But then that new heaven and new earth, that's eternal. So you know what? We need to be doing whatever we can do right now. Now is our time to be laying up those eternal rewards. Now is the time to do that. And so we need to be thinking about that. So wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things. So because you're looking for the eternal, because you're looking for the new heaven and the new earth, where there's going to be righteousness, one of these days we will be without sin. One of these days, we will be like Christ. We're not yet, but one of these days we will be. So because we're looking for those things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So if we're really looking for the new heaven and new earth, we should live like it, like we're a part of that right now, the best we can. And I think the best way to illustrate this is a young lady who gets engaged, okay? If a young lady gets engaged, a guy comes along, asks her to marry him, and she says yes, are they now married? No, they're not. But you know what? Even though they're not married, there should be some changes in her behavior where she's not talking to other guys like she used to. Okay? You know, there might have been a time before where, you know, she tried to get a guy's attention, flirt a little bit or something like that. But you know what? After she gets engaged, once it's set, you know, she's, she's made a decision. I'm going to marry this guy. She shouldn't be flirting with other guys. Oh, well, they're not married. doesn't matter. They're going to be. And folks, we're not righteous yet. We're not married to Christ yet. But we're espoused to Him, aren't we? And when we get married to Him, we're going to be just like Him. We're going to be clean. And you know what we should do right now? We should start acting like it. We should start trying to be godly. And you know what ladies you know, often will do if they're engaged and maybe some guy comes along and flirts with them a little bit? You know, they like to make sure that he sees the ring. What are, what are they doing? They're saying, hey, I'm spoken for. You know, it's just an engagement ring. But unless the guy's a total pig, you know, hopefully he'll take the hint and say, well, yeah, I guess she's already spoken for. And you know what? We ought to be the same way. We should be living different. We should be living godly. Oh, well, you're not like Christ yet. You, no, we're not. But we're going to be, and we're looking forward to it. We're excited about it. And so, you know what? Forgive us if we act like it a little bit. And you know what? That young lady who refuses to flirt with the other guy, who's not going to you know, take, you know, give that guy her phone number, it's not because she thinks she's married to that other guy, but it's because she knows she's going to be one of these days, and she knows that her fiancé wouldn't appreciate that. And the Lord doesn't appreciate it when we're flirting with sin and where we're getting involved in junk that he's planning on, you know, getting out of our lives forever. And so because we have that hope, we do our best, even though we're not we're not quite there yet. So verse 15 says an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Now, notice how he refers to Paul's writings here. Okay? Now, people often think that, or teach, and they could be right. I'm kind of giving my opinion on this. 
They think when Paul, when they, when Peter writes about the things that were hard to be understood that Paul wrote about, uh, they think it's referring to end times things because he's been talking about those things here. But I personally think he's talking about things about our salvation. And the, and the reason for that is because verse 15, Peter refers to the long suffering of our Lord being salvation. And I believe he's saying this because in Peter's epistles, he's mainly dealt with how they were supposed to live as Christians. He doesn't really write about salvation. He doesn't really, he's not teaching the ins and outs of salvation like Paul did. You know, we don't usually go to first and second Peter when trying to lead someone to Christ. We usually go to Romans, don't we? Because Paul is explaining deeply the ins and outs of salvation. Paul did a lot of writing about salvation. And so many of the things about salvation in reality are hard to understand. You know, but the truth is, and you know what, you say, oh no, I understand salvation is easy. No, the gospel okay, is easy. You know, getting salvation is easy, but understanding all that God has done for us in salvation, folks, that's pretty deep. That goes real deep. Understanding, you know, the, how, you know, I don't think any of us can fully comprehend the blood atonement and how Christ's blood cleanses us of our sins. And you know what? You don't have to understand it. You just need to believe it. You don't need to understand everything about the sinless life of Christ, the virgin birth, the crucifixion, all that took place then. You don't have to understand why everything happened the way it did. But you know what you better do? You better believe it. And... I, I personally think that's what he's talking about. And I think this would have been especially hard for people who I believe these people were who had been under the old covenant, who remembered the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth time for things of people who are used to doing the sacrifices all the time that were always bringing a remembrance of sin. They were used to sin being remembered and now they're being taught about a one-time sacrifice where your sins are forgotten. Now, folks, that's all we've ever known, and we love that. But these people, they knew, they were around during a different time, and so these things were probably harder for them to grasp. But we, we kind of take these things for granted. So I personally think he's just referring to the things about salvation. And you know what? A salvation with no works, I believe that strongly because the Bible spells it out. But it's like, come on, you should have to do something. And that's why a lot of people teach. Yeah, you got to do something. I mean, yes, it's without works, but you got to have some works. You know, right? You know, I mean, you got you to have something. Like that article I read Sunday, salvation's free, but at the same time, it costs you everything. Listen, the only reason I believe that salvation is without works is because the Bible just lays that out for us and just tells us that over and over and over again. But I think you should. I think you should have to rep- at least repent of some sins. Okay, that's my opinion. If I'd have made a way of salvation, it would have been a repent of your sins gospel. I would, but not all of your sins. You know, just the ones that I'm able to handle. All right. You know, so that, that's what that's what I would have done. And you know, and but that's not what the Bible teaches. So um, understand though that a lot, that's what kills a lot of people. They're always trying to make everything make sense in their mind. Folks, we can't make it all make sense. We can't understand. Some of these things are hard to understand. You know what? Don't worry about understanding it. Just believe it. The scriptures are very clear. Salvation is eternal. I think some people should be able to lose their salvation. I do. There's some people I, I don't really want to go to heaven. You know, I, th- you know, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm kidding a little bit, but it's like, come on. Some stuff you should lose your salvation for, right? And... and you know, maybe y'all are more gracious than I am. Maybe y'all are more Christ-like than I am, but I don't know. I, I, think, I think you should be able to lose your salvation. But guess what? It's very clear that God does not agree with me on that. And there's a lot of things we don't agree on. I don't agree with the stuff about taxes and things like that. But guess what? I believe it. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I just, I love that. But I, I'm going to tell you right now, I believe it because it is spelled out in the Bible. And so I think that's what Peter's talking about there. And so he says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also be led away with the error of the wicked and fall from your own steadfastness. 
and that their steadfastness that Peter did not want them to fall from was not their salvation. That's not what he's been talking about through First and Second Peter. He did not want to fall from them being steadfast in their living of holy lives. That's what this has all been about. He wanted them to stay faithful. You know what I don't want you all to do? I don't want you all to... I want you all to stay steadfast in living holy lives. I don't want you to fall out of church. I don't want you to fall into sin. That can happen, even if you're saved. And if you do that, you're going to regret it when Jesus Christ comes back. And so you know what you're supposed to do after you get saved? But grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You know what will help you more than anything? You know what will help keep you from falling? You know what will help keep you living for the Lord is learning more about Christ. And you know what? Maybe some of you do. Maybe, you, maybe some of you are so spiritual, you do understand all these things about salvation. You do understand every bit of it and why eternal security is you know, the way it is. Maybe you do understand all those things, but you know what? E- either way you spin it, even if you don't understand those things, believe it. Always believe what the Bible says and keep learning. Keep on learning. Keep on getting closer to Christ and you will be safe. And so this last verse is instruction. All of us should be following every day of our life until Jesus comes, growing. Say, Pastor, I think we're a pretty good church. I, you know, I think we should be satisfied. No, we shouldn't. We should grow. If we're doing good, we should try to get better. We need to be better in 2022 than we were in 2021. And we need to do even better next year. I, you know what? Five years from now, we should look back at our church and what we were doing. And we, we should be like, man, we, we weren't that great. We think we're pretty good right now. But, you know, if we're actually growing, you know, we're going to look back and think, man, we, we were kind of lame back then and and you know that's okay as long as we're moving in the right direction you know what i don't want i don't want us looking back like a lot of people and talking about the glory days i remember when we used to have them soldering marathons you know remember when we used to have those big crowds remember when we used to have the nice orchestra that played the the, beautiful music before we had a rock and roll you know because we couldn't get people in any other way you know i mean i don't want to do that I, I, want, I want us growing. And let me tell you something. If you're not growing, you're backsliding. There is no staying where you're at. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Mark it down. If you're not growing, you're backsliding. If you're not, and we, we can't, that's why we can never just settle for where we're at. Always need to become more and more like Christ. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray this message was a help to everybody. And Lord, I pray that we will... Uh, get the main message of First and Second Peter, and that is living godly lives. Lord, help us to uh, be thankful for our salvation. Help us not to take advantage of our se- eternal security. But I pray that uh, we'll have an appreciation for that eternal security, and that it will motivate us to just live godly and do it for you, because not because we have to, but because we love you and want to please you. In your name, we pray. Amen.